While I was preparing some things to talk about for this podcast, I was reminded, for reasons that will become clear in time, of the first time I visited the magical city of Barcelona. This particular time, I went without telling anyone, which turned out to be one of those ideas that I really didn't think through. These were the days when I worked at the network. I was a motion graphics artist at 20th Century Fox, and I could just bug out at a moment's notice because I was a mollycoddled and temperamental creative. I would need to recharge my battery, I would say. Those were the days when the sound of my cell phone ringing would send me into a panic attack. It meant that I was about to be dragged into a protracted, white-knuckle sleep deprivation experiment where my entire career depended on delivering on someone else's promises which usually meant doing a month's work in a short week, under incredible stress, with sometimes dozens of superfluous people looking over my shoulder and trying to help, but actually just keeping me from concentrating and making the whole thing more like some kind of horrible Milgram experiment than just a simple case of a professional applying his craft to a visual or an animation or a title for some promotional event. To this day, the sound of a cell phone ringing still sends a chilling panic deep into my bones. That was before lightning struck my ivory tower and the whole thing came crashing down, largely due to corporate mergers and buyouts at a high level. It happens in networks that, that sometimes high-level shakeups happen and a whole downstream hierarchy are all let go and replaced by the cronies of some other high-level network executive. Anyway, part of the nature of my job is that I work long hours, sometimes two, three days in a row without any rest. Sometimes I would go months and months without a day off. So when the opportunity presented itself, sometimes I would just bug out. I would go on vacation for an extended period of time and not bring my phone, not tell anybody where I was. When I would bug out, sometimes I would go to Amsterdam. Sometimes I would go to Italy, along the Amalfi Coast, but mostly Amsterdam. And this one time, I stayed there for too long. At this particular time, I was there somewhere between 90 and 120 days, and really thought maybe this time was the time where I might end up establishing a permanent residency there. But something like 30 days went by, and in this entire time, the sun never came out, and I started getting a little buggy. I developed a powerful lust for sunshine, but unlike the Dutch, who didn't seem to mind, I had spent the better part of my life to that date in sunny Southern California where you never had to go more than a couple of days without the sun shining down on you and making everything seem okay. I was not okay with cold, gray, overcast stretches of time where the sun would absolutely not show itself. On this particular occasion, the sun had not come out for about 30 consecutive days. And although up until that time I had no reason to even suspect this, it turns out that I start to really come unglued if I go too long without a bright, sunny day. As the unrelenting cold, gray, dismal days stretched on, I started getting more and more diffuse and depressed and sort of existentially off. So about day 30 of this unrelenting gray patch, it started feeling like someone was holding me underwater. I started to panic. I started to feel like I couldn't breathe. I started feeling my grip on sanity slipping away. I started feeling like an animal in a cage that was too small. Maybe my soul was dying. That's what it felt like. I woke up one morning and realized that I was going to have to take some sudden and drastic action or something really bad was going to happen. There were some other mitigating circumstances that all converged to show me that the universe was intervening in my affairs, as it sometimes does. 
It was starting to look like the universe wanted me to move on. There had always been something about Amsterdam and me. It was like a spider web that I was always a little too comfortable being caught in, or like the field of poppies that Dorothy and her entourage had to walk through. A delightful and at the same time insidious urge to just lay down and sleep, to forget about the cares and duties of the outside world, knowing full well that these are the kind of naps from which people often never awaken. But it feels so good and so right in the moment that it seems like an equitable trade-off. So here's how the universe slapped me back awake and impressed upon me that it was time to be moving on. Here are the circumstances that converged to usher me out of my comfortable cocoon and make it impossible for me to do anything but leave. For a period of time, it was somewhere between 90 and 120 days. Although at the time I wasn't paying attention to the passage of time, I'd been a guest at the Grand Hotel. It was in a beautiful part of Amsterdam, maybe the Nines for people who know the neighborhood, but close enough to the red light district that I could be there in a couple of minutes from my front door. It was a visit I made on a daily basis. At some other time, I may choose to regale listeners with stories about the nature of my visits to the red light district, almost none of which are age-appropriate, family-friendly, or suitable for workplace listening. One of the many things that fascinated me about the red light district was the many coffee shops where it was perfectly legal to walk in with your head held high and choose from a bewildering assortment of fine strains of the world's greatest cannabis. But not just that. At the time, and this is many years ago, well past the statute of limitations, like all the incriminating details that I might divulge about myself. At the time, you could also visit a tall refrigerator display case with dozens of different species of magic mushrooms. I had developed a fondness for a particular and very exotic strain called Copalandia, which came from Hawaii. They were rated at about 10 times the strength of the Strophaeria cubensis that I was most familiar with the mushrooms of my homeland that were big, brownish, tan, robust things, about five to seven inches long, a little thicker than a number two pencil. The Copalandias looked alien, sort of foreboding. They were pale and sometimes completely white, sort of vaguely translucent and almost tiny in comparison, thin strands about the thickness of spaghetti. The tiny little caps on the top were about half the diameter of the flat part of a thumbtack. Curious thing that I noticed about the Copalandias was that the, the visions, or the visuals, the hallucinations that I had on them were almost always sort of tiki-themed. Like the art director behind them was the same intelligence that designed the interior decor of a tiki bar. Very tribal and Polynesian, with notes of those tribal tattoos that Hawaiians and the Maori of New Zealand sometimes sport. It had always been my experience of the Mexican Strophoria cubensis that a huge recurring visual theme that was imparted was decidedly Mayan or Aztec, the same visuals that Mayan shaman must have seen that inspired the Mesoamerican decorative and ornamental motifs seen on the ancient Mayan temples and jars and vases, blankets and sacred art, stair steps and saw patterns, recursive squares. So it eventually dawned on me as an artist and a graphic designer that in some sense the canonical archetypal art motifs of different cultures might well have been imparted by the different personalities or the voices of different intelligences of the psychedelic mushrooms on different continents. If this isn't the true voice of Gaia, I don't know what is. I know there are strains of psychedelic mushrooms in Asia. There's even a psychedelic honey in Burma. Maybe the bees eat the mushrooms and then they make their honey. There are some really beautiful and strong ones in Thailand and Indonesia. I would love to sample all of these and see if each one produced the artistic 
ornamental patterns and motifs that were unique to each culture. The Thai and Cambodian temples are very unique, psychedelic, seeming to depict the world of ectoplasmic fire that Manly P. Hall calls the etheric realm, but also beautiful scrolling floral patterns. I would love to discover that the Thai mushrooms provide visions or visuals that inform those beautiful motifs that make the temples and sacred structures so uniquely breathtaking. But anyway, on this day, I bought a very large tray of Copalandias, and at some point before I left the shop, someone offered me something special, something rare for Amsterdam. Fresh peyote buttons. Not dried ones like you hear about most often, but fresh, fat, succulent, newly plucked peyote buttons right off the cactus. At the time, it struck me that it would be foolhardy to pass up such a rare opportunity. So I bought an amount that I was told was about three strong doses. In Amsterdam, when someone says something is strong, that usually means that stable, career trippers who've seen and done it all have judged it to be a challenge. So that descriptor is one that is best understood to be a massive understatement. So with cargo in hand, I made it back to my hotel room that had become my somewhat long-term residence. I had arrived with no particular schedule and no planned date of departure. The hotel started billing me in advance for three days at a time, which then became a week at a time. And with a phone call from downstairs once a week, I kept extending. At this point, I'd been at the Grand for about 90 days. No one seemed to be bothered by it, and it was really working for me. The place was magical, airy, and comfortable, and stylish, in a sort of Swiss minimalist way. I would engage in light-hearted, casual flirting with the gorgeous girls who worked at the reception desk. And best of all, it was a fantastic atmosphere for tripping. So I got home, unpacked everything, laid out my supplies, and realized I had no idea what to do with the peyote buttons. I had no idea how to prepare them. I consulted the internet and found that the most common way, or at least the way that, well, that was within my means, was to make a tea out of the peyote buttons. So I tried one in tea, poured some hot water and let it steep. I drank the tea, and then just for good measure, I ate the peyote button. And I waited. And I waited. And I waited. After about an hour and a half, I decided to try the second one. And same thing, I waited and waited and still nothing. I began to think that maybe I'd been had and decided to move on to the Copalandias. But then mysteriously, even the Copalandias didn't float my boat. So here's something, speaking of floating boats, people who've experienced a tsunami will tell you that one of the telltale signs that a tsunami is coming is that all the water gets sucked out to sea. It's like the lowest tide you've ever seen. The water appears to be just gone. There's a particular sound, rocks banging against each other, like a spine breaking, because the water recedes so fast. It's being drawn out to form the body of the titanic wall of water that will come crashing in, sweeping all the architecture away like it was made of matchsticks, which is what happened to the architecture of my frail and delicate psyche as a tsunami of iron-fisted psychedelia eventually crushed me in its titanic strides. It was almost six hours after I ate the peyote. At this point, I downed all three buttons and ate an entire tray of Copalandias, not being able to figure out why nothing was having an effect. That was when I realized there was a tsunami coming. So as this titanic wave washed over me, I was swept away in a kind of psychedelic rapture, a terrifying, overwhelming kind of rapture. 
It was like those classic tales of Goethe, where he left his body and traveled in the hypnagogic space, a hyperspatial world inhabited by autonomous intelligences, where he roamed and explored the depths of hell and the heights of heaven, or like what Jung described as active imagination, where a remarkable shift takes place, wherein, instead of you forming the stuff of mind and imagination by your own direction, you sit back, take a passive posture, and suddenly consciousness itself reveals itself to have been a conscious entity all its own. It starts telling you stories and showing you visions of fantastic worlds and amazing spaces and introducing you to the mind-bending entities that live in its further reaches, completely autonomous, self-aware, like fish swimming in a vast ocean, living coexistent to you in the vast ocean of your mind, usually choosing to coexist from afar, but on this occasion, deciding to acknowledge and even interact with you while you sit there with your jaw thrown open from amazement. As Terence McKenna says, going insane is an occupational hazard of being a psychonaut, but typically the only thing you're actually in danger of is dying of amazement. So it was with me. I was quickly totally oblivious to my actual surroundings and was completely immersed in the most vivid, intense, intimate, wholly transported voyage I had yet experienced through a psychedelic catalyst. It was not just visuals, but I could hear the words and feel the emotions and thoughts of the many strange entities I encountered. I was out of my mind high for about three days straight, which is the longest trip I'd ever had up until that point. I'd experienced LSD trips that lasted up to 12 hours, about eight hour mushroom trips, but never anything that lasted three days. Never, never anything that was so unbelievably intense, overwhelming, immersive. I remember at one point being so disoriented, so off the hook, and so terrified by the Lovecraftian world beyond my hotel room door, that when I heard housekeeping walk by, or maybe even ignoring the do not disturb sign on the door and knocking, I had hidden myself behind the long velvet drapes beside the window and stayed cocooned there until the knocking stopped and the maid left. I was absolutely not equipped for even a basic interaction with the outside world, and could not imagine what kind of multi-headed, thousand-eyed monster would lunge out at me from the other side of the door. It was during those three days that I went to heaven, or more specifically, I passed through a series of ascending registers, many of which absolutely correspond to various cultures' depiction of heaven, including a great hunting lodge in Valhalla. Here's how that happened. As I started getting more comfortable in the space, I remembered to deploy an experiment that I had planned for this rare opportunity in psychedelic hyperspace, a form of yoga that was presented to me with the name Nadi Yoga. I'm a firm believer in planning for a trip, and like Edgar Mitchell in space, planning certain experiments that one can perform under the unique conditions that a trip provides. For people who don't know, the astronaut Edgar Mitchell performed a number of unauthorized tests that involved psychic ability and other noetic properties of mind that he wondered might be enabled in the unique environment of outer space. So, taking inspiration from Edgar, and of course being a rabid fan of Terence McKenna and his protocols for interacting with DMT elves and other hyperspatial entities that one might encounter while tripping, one of the operations that I wanted to perform was a yogic technique that I had locked and loaded. 
specifically to deploy during my trip in the extreme conditions which had made it a wall-to-wall -wall powerful and immersive experience, more real and more vivid than any waking moment I'd yet experienced. The experiment was a yogic activity. I think it was presented to me with the name Nadi Yoga. Not naughty like an incorrigible young boy, although that does make the mind race to wonder what sort of yoga might be considered naughty. This is naughty like NADI, the, the naughties, the energetic channels, uh, the most famous of which are the Ida and Pingala. The exercise is this. Apparently, the subtle body sings. Its high vibrations emit an extremely high-pitched hum. It's the highest sound you can hear. And just like the sound of your own heartbeat, it's always there. And if you know... If you try to hear it, you can always hear it, no matter what kind of environment you're in, and what kind of sounds are going on externally. You can always hear your own heartbeat, and if you know how and where to listen, you can always hear the extremely high-pitched hum of your own subtle body, or electrical body. It might be the worrying operation of your brain. The longer you concentrate on it, the more it begins to sound like music, like faraway angels singing in the millions. The longer you listen, the more it draws you in. At first it sounds impossibly far away, but the more you concentrate on it, the more you focus on it and begin to resonate with it, the more it draws you in, until at some point it surrounds you, like you were drawn into the middle of a vast cloud of singing angels. The point of the exercise is that on some register, your own existential vibrational rate begins to rise into resonance with the incredibly high vibrational rate of this inner sound. I was told to try this, but really had no idea or no expectation about what might happen. So as the trip began to unfold for me, the hum was like a helium balloon that I held onto, and no matter what came at me, and no matter what I experienced, no matter what insane visuals and crazy hallucinations, no matter what psychedelic landscapes I walked through, I kept holding onto this balloon, and it was like it was lifting me through stratas, up through layers of clouds, higher and higher, until it was like I was rising past a high-rise building with the face cut off, like the set of a Wes Anderson film. I kept rising and rising, up through the floor of one register, through the room, and then exiting through the ceiling again. And the more I did this, the more, the higher I got in this psychedelic space the more the spaces that went by began to resemble these places that absolutely corresponded, as I say, to uh, various cultural descriptions of heaven. So the one that really got me was suddenly I began lifting through a room that was a hunting lodge, very much like the hunting lodge you see in Viking depictions, especially in stories where warriors meet after they die in Valhalla. The thing that got me was that as I entered the room and began to ascend through the room, all the warriors who were there drinking and reveling, they all recognized me. They saluted me as I rose to their space. And then it struck me as I looked at their faces. I knew every one of them, old friends from previous lives, some I'd fought shoulder to shoulder with, lovers whose faces I had not seen since I was born into this life. They called my name. They saluted me. Some burst into tears of joy, and I burst into tears for the love I felt for each and every one of them, and for the love I felt from them. Chance, they said, and raised their glass. They were delighted that I'd finally joined them. 
but I was holding on to the balloon and I was resolved not to let go and to see where it ultimately took me. Although I've never experienced a temptation greater than I did that day to just let go of the balloon and stay there in this fantastic ultimate resting place. This lodge that I would occupy apparently in between incarnations. I love you all. I love you all. But I have to follow this balloon. I have to see where it's going to take me. But I promise I'll be back. They saluted me once more as I drifted through the ceiling. After this, things became nondescript. It was a glowing space that I kept rising through and rising through. I kept holding on to the balloon. I kept focusing on the very highest sound that I could hear, the highest vibration. In retrospect, I'm not sure if this is a yogic technique or a magical operation. It definitely partakes of the correct definitions of both. But I followed the balloon all the way to the top. And when I got to what I was certain was the very highest register, there was a voice that spoke to me, this soundless voice that spoke in my head, as entities tend to do in these hyperspatial registers. It said this thing that I was absolutely not prepared to hear. It said, this is your house, implying that this is where I lived between incarnations when I wasn't occupied elsewhere. The house was amazing. The architecture had a sense of humor. It was somewhat like an M.C. Escher where... It was a hyperspatial structure that didn't really make sense in three dimensions and did so in such a way that was actually funny. It was like thumbing your nose at traditional architecture in 3D spaces. Then I heard the voice again. This is your heavenly throne, it said. It was an amazing, giant, white marble affair, but somehow it looked incredibly comfortable. It looked like it was tailored just for me. And then I heard the final thing that surprised me most of all. This is your heavenly wife. I was laying in bed, sweating. My eyes were closed. And although I could see these visions, I was for some reason prevented from seeing the face of my heavenly wife. I looked and looked, trying to determine her identity. But it was, it was, it was withheld from me. Perhaps some cosmic referee deemed that it wasn't appropriate for me to actually know these secrets because of the disingenuous way that I had returned to heaven and that I was, in some sense, arrived with an elastic band around my ankle that was going to yank me back out when the effects of the peyote and mushrooms wore off. Then the next day or so was sort of a blur and on day three, I was still unbelievably high. And one of the things I clearly remember during that time was staring at my eyes in the mirror and I discovered a most remarkable thing. I've never heard any mention of this. I had no expectation of this happening. I've never heard anybody else write about this. And as far as I know, it's not generally acknowledged that this is a thing that humans can do. But after the second hour of staring at my eyes in the mirror, I began to notice that the colors of my pupils, the normally kind of bluish gray, barely saturated color in my eyes, began to fluoresce and began to become a deeper and deeper, more vibrant, more saturated blue. They eventually became a blue-green, almost glowing. It was blue like the sunniest day on the Côte d'Azur, or like the water off the coastline in the National Park here in Queensland. The longer I watched, the more I realized that I could employ a sort of flush of emotions, still feeding on and returning to the absolute heart-bursting love that I felt when I passed through the lodge in Valhalla, when I would summon these incredibly strong emotions of love and longing, I'd learned that I could flex the color of my eyes. I could flex the color of my pupils. It wasn't as easy as moving my hand, but 
When I concentrated on it, I could cause the saturation and the brightness and the depth of the colors to glow and not swirl, but definitely pulsate. And it fascinated me. So I sat for at least another hour just staring and doing this new thing that I never knew was possible, flexing the saturation of the colors of my pupils. Oh, I'm sorry, not not my pupils, my iris. The iris is the colored part of the eye. It seemed to me at the time to be somewhat akin to the way an octopus could willfully change the color and even the patterns on their skin, and, and when in danger, might cycle through various colors and patterns, mimicking various types of predators in a clever attempt to scare an aggressor away. I've heard Terence McKenna lecturing about how the octopus communicated in this way, and he remarked on what a wonderful world it would be if humanity ever learned to communicate in this fashion, as it might cut down significantly on the ability to lie if our pigment or skin patterns were reflections of our inner landscape or inner truth and was communicated graphically to all who were looking. I wondered if this might be some as yet undiscovered ability that had lain dormant in the human DNA, waiting for some future evolution of mankind. This is the sort of thing one thinks about under those conditions, I guess. And for the inevitable suggestion that this experience was just a continuation of my long train of hallucinations, I will say that under no circumstances have I ever been unable to distinguish between a hallucination and reality. This wasn't a hallucination. This really happened. I have no explanation for it, but I didn't imagine it. It wasn't a product of reverie. I wasn't in a dream space when it happened. It had never happened before. It has never happened since, but it really happened. Later, under similar states of remarkable, non-standard brain chemistry, I've had other things happen that are totally outside the normal parameters of human consciousness. I've considered them to be dormant, unacknowledged abilities. They're waiting in our DNA for future discovery. On another related note, the amazing filmmaker Tim Burton included this detail in Alice in Wonderland. The Mad Hatter, played by Johnny Depp, when he experienced strong emotions, his eyes, the color of his eyes, would fluoresce. The film was made years after my experience, and as far as I know, Tim Burton had never heard my story. But it was interesting that this lies in the zeitgeist somewhere, and for him to have chosen that detail. At the end of day three of this solid bender, I was a physical wreck. I hadn't slept. I was pouring sweat. I had no food. My body felt like it was hit by a truck. It was very frail like accounts of what a junkie feels like towards the end. Like my bones were made of cotton candy. My mind had utterly collapsed. And other than slowly drifting from place to place, like a helium balloon in a mild breeze, I really wasn't up to doing anything, but just sleeping. Maybe for a couple of days. And maybe after a couple of days of sleep, maybe getting some food. But I laid down and I couldn't sleep. And eventually, I thought, maybe if I put some sunglasses on and I don't talk to anybody... I could go somewhere and get some food. I went to a local restaurant and was able to eat without really engaging anyone. I drank a bottle of wine to try and stabilize myself. I was in really bad shape and I started feeling like I was going into shock. So I was ready to leave when the proprietors of the restaurant came over and started chatting with me. And something about their engaging and hospitable nature caused me to stay and chat for a while. But they opened another bottle of wine and then another. We started having a lot of fun and started losing ourselves in the moment. And we chatted and chatted and talked and 
one of the fantastic benefits of knowing restaurateurs, having them as friends, is that they always keep special bottles of wine for themselves for special occasions. And they shared several of these bottles with me until just before sunrise, I began to realize that I was so whacked that I was about to take leave of my senses. I was about to become one of those people that was a wandering zombie, or worse yet, completely pass out, which is an incredibly inadvisable thing to do on the streets of Amsterdam. I realized that I'd better go home before I fell over, and walking home I realized with a shock I had no idea where I was and I was so bent that I didn't recognize any of the features. Somehow, after an incredibly long period of time, I made it back to my room, and now having gone almost four days without, without sleep or any kind of rest without the ability to collect myself, I finally made it back to my room. It was my refuge, and just as I was collapsing, the sun was coming up, and as I landed on the bed, the phone started ringing. Nothing good happens from a phone call at sunrise, but I picked up the phone, and I heard a voice on the other side say, Mr. Gardner, we will be needing your room today. Checkout is 8 a.m. This hit me like a punch in the face. I was metaphysically tired and genuinely thought that I would die if I didn't go to sleep. Can I re-up? I said, I'd like to extend my stay for another seven days. We're sorry, but that is impossible. The hotel is fully booked. The convention is in town for the week, and we're fully booked for the foreseeable future. It started to rain outside. I got up and I got dressed. A pounding headache started. I left the hotel with nowhere to go, abruptly transitioning from my magical luxury suite to being homeless in Amsterdam which is not an uncommon fate, but not in any way a pleasant or desirable one. I walked through the pouring rain with my rolling luggage and tow behind me like an idiot from one hotel to another, only to find that the convention was so big that there was not a single room to be had anywhere in town. Trying to gather my thoughts and still trying to wake up, shake some sense into my head, still waiting for some catalyzing event to jumpstart my traumatized and inoperative brain, I saw a small, dusty bookstore with an open door. Mostly to get out of the rain, I walked in. It was cramped, and all my luggage made it very hard to move through the narrow aisles between the tall stacks of musty and dusty books. I love the smell of old bookstores. It's a one-of-a-kind smell of ageless literature. I started to feel a little better. I had the place to myself and started looking for something to read. Maybe some escapism was exactly what was called for. Then I noticed that all the books were in Dutch. I was like Burgess Meredith in that twilight zone where the bookworm steps out of time or the world ends or something and he has nothing but time to finally catch up on his true passion, reading. As he's rejoicing, his glasses fall off his nose and fall to the floor where they, where they shatter in a million pieces. It was one of those moments for me, how perfectly in keeping with the tone of the day so far, I thought. At that point, a single book dramatically jumped off the shelf at me. A singular English book in an otherwise Dutch bookstore. A local shop for locals. A New View Over Atlantis was the title of the book. The author was John Michel. It was an amazing and life-changing book that would become my new best friend for the weeks and even years to come. Because of that moment and because of that book, which was also very musty and worn and used, a chain of events were laid down in my future that resulted in me, three or four years later, going to London to stay with John Michel. The remarkable genius, Fortian, esoteric authority, a decadent English aristocrat. As it turned out, he was a longtime friend and mentor to a young John Anthony West during John's formative years. 
John Michelle was also a lifelong friend of the amazing scientist Rupert Sheldrake, who I would also end up meeting at Esalen, and then four or five years later would visit him at his home in Hampstead Heath in London, about one month before the quarantines shut the world down and brought the wheels of commerce, travel, democracy, and individual liberties to a grinding halt. So I bought the book, and I sat there till the rain stopped. John Michelle's casually elegant, stylish writing, his titanic and sophisticated intellect, transported me away, and I was instantly lost, carried away in that special way that only a great book can do. When I looked up next, it had stopped raining. The little back alley that the bookstore was hiding in was like one of those magically quaint alleys from a Harry Potter movie, and suddenly I saw for the first time, out the window, to the other side of the narrow alley, just a few feet away, a shop I hadn't noticed before. There was a small sign on the, on the window that said, Travel Agent. Oh my God, I probably said out loud. I picked up my stuff and went across the street. I walked in and asked the agent, Where's the sun shining right now? In a few moments, I was holding a one-way rail ticket to Barcelona. I had a couple of hours to kill before my train left. So, like Hunter S. Thompson preparing for his trip to Las Vegas, I reported to the nearest coffee shop to procure as much hash as I could hold in my ample jacket pockets. I think I had two big exterior pockets and one deep pocket inside the breast of the coat. I also got as much Dutch White Widow as they would sell me. At the time, I was having an absolute love affair with White Widow and considered the possibility that I might not be returning to Amsterdam for the foreseeable future. I should point out at this juncture that this took place more than 20 years ago, in a totally different world, before the events of 9-11 created a security, theater, Orwellian nightmare that forever killed one's ability to travel anonymously, discreetly, with the shred of dignity and personal sovereignty or privacy of one's personal space. Just before the quarantines, Venice and I visited Rupert Sheldrake in London, and I was horrified to see that even to take the train, you had to go through all the scanners and invasion of personal space that one has to go through in the airport for your safety. That was a sad moment, realizing that I had lived through a golden age of sorts without realizing it, and that that age was over, probably to not return in my lifetime. But in this story, I was still oblivious to the horrors to come, and I took full advantage of the lax attitude of the rails and the total lack of interaction with customs agents as the train crossed international borders. I also want to point out I don't mean in any way to glorify drug use or to condone it, and that circumstances having to do with a failed liver and other physical malfunctions have forced me to stop using all intoxicants. And I want to reiterate that all this took place way, way longer ago than any statute of limitations might apply. Also, for any law enforcement or Interpol or customs agents that might be listening, I want to claim that this story is told for novelty purposes only, and any resemblance to living characters is purely coincidental. I only include these details because they are an intrinsic part of the story. So I got on the train to Barcelona. It was pretty deserted, and as a precautionary measure, I took all the hash and White Widow and triple bagged it in some used hamburger bags that were spilling out of the overfull trash bins beneath the windows next to every third row of passenger seats on the train. Then I stuffed the full bag about halfway down the garbage bin. And I sat a couple rows back so I could keep an eye on them, but far enough away for any plausible deniability if they unexpectedly came to light under the wrong circumstances. And with that, the train took off. And in a few hours, I walked out of the train station loaded for bear and into the glorious blazing sunlight of Barcelona. 
I took an amazing, giant, old-world Byzantine room on the Ramblas with a view of the Gaudi church. I put the Do Not Disturb sign out, and I crashed. It was the best night's sleep I ever had. My body and my overtaxed brain were at their very end, but I held it together just long enough to find my way to the room, and I was out. I don't know how long I slept, if it was a day or two days, but when I woke up, it was a bright, sunny morning, and the only thing there is to do for a reasonable thinking person with no particular plans in Barcelona is to report directly to the beach, so I called for a cab. A taxi showed up, and the gentleman driver was roughly twice my age. He was a Spaniard. I was still pretty hungover, or whatever the word is for what I'd just been through in Amsterdam, and I didn't hold high prospects for this being a chatty, amiable drive, and imagined that this might be one of those taxi rides where the driver is a stoic, or a man of few words, where we just sit in silence till it's time for me to get out, which is about all I had the bandwidth for anyway. He said a couple of pleasantries in Spanish and figured out that I didn't speak Spanish, at least not enough to hold a conversation. But he asked me a few small talky things, and then asked me why I was in Barcelona. I said I was on sabbatical, which was easier than explaining that I was having a protracted nervous breakdown and was wandering the earth aimlessly, waiting for something to relight my pilot light. He asked me what I did for a living, and I told him I was an artist because I couldn't imagine that he would understand what a graphic designer or a motion graphics designer or a 3D animator was. His English was fairly limited. He stuck to the basics. But when I told him I was an artist, he lit up and he asked me if I knew of the Spanish master painter Salvador Dali. Of all the painters in the world, there's exactly one painter that I appreciate enough to become animated about. And it was Salvador Dali, the surrealist master, patron of the strange and eccentric artist. Dali was a shining example in my opinion of how it was the duty of the true artist to make one's life, including all the little moments, into a piece of performance art. I told him that I was wholly in love with and eternally fascinated by and inspired by Dali, and things took off like a rocket. He told me the story of where Dali had grown up, in a village near the one that the taxi driver had grown up in. He told me some other stories about Salvador Dali. I returned the favor by telling him a slightly longer story that went something like this. My business partner and benefactor at the time, the person who brought me into the ivory tower of the 20th Century Fox new executive building in the production hub where the on-air promo teams worked, was a gentleman named Jim Cahill. Cahill grew up in Chicago and became a DJ of some renown. He was, coincidentally, childhood friends with one Vince Fernier, who would later become the internationally iconic shock rock and rocker known to the world as Alice Cooper. Cahill, at some point, jumped from being a radio DJ to joining Shep Gordon, the infamous rock and roll agent, promoter, and mogul, who managed Alice Cooper, as well as the Eagles and a few other pinnacle apex rock stars of the day. Cahill was already close to Alice Cooper and became his advance and roadman. He would show up in cities a week before Alice's tour reached the city and would give various forms of payola to the DJs as a bribe of sorts to get them to play a lot of Alice Cooper songs and to heavily promote the show to maximize ticket sales when the tour arrived in each town. He told me his nickname on the road was Jim, where's the coffee, Cahill? Where's the coffee was code for, who has the coke? Cahill would travel with a briefcase brimming with the highest caliber coke that he would use as part of the bribing of DJs and for all sorts of other occasions that one might find themselves in on the road as part of a rock and roll tour. Lots of stories there. But a decade later, he was older and working as a network liaison between our production and graphics team and the upper echelon of network executives at 20th Century Fox. He had an office in the new executive building, while I vastly preferred to work off the lot. 
because I could never concentrate or get anything done on the lawn. I was too much of a fanboy, and all the time I would see Matt Groening walk by, or I would see Greg Daniels, or Mike Judge, or some other incredibly genetically, congenitally hilarious comedic geniuses that were staff writers for some of my favorite TV shows, and I would often stalk them, just following them around and watching them, listening to the hilarious things they would say as they made their rounds. Plus, at any given time on the Fox lot, a new version of Star Wars might be screening to test a partial cut. Or when there was absolutely nothing going on, I would just wander around the giant sets, the fake facades of 1920s New York, or some World War II city block, or the fake island where Gilligan's Island was shot, or whatever. I don't think Gilligan's Island was actually there, I think that was on the Paramount lot. But I just loved being on the lot. And I wasn't at all jaded like a lot of the other people on the lot, so I was always distracted by how awesome it was. But anyway, Cahill and I spent untold hours working on promotional campaigns and graphics packages and perpetually designing new iterations of the Fox TV logos and whatever else came down the pike. Plus, we partied together on many nights where there was something to celebrate. And many nights when there was nothing to celebrate. And over the years, I'd heard millions of stories about things that he and Alice would get up to on Alice's tours. One of my favorite stories about Alice was the period of time when he developed a total bromance with Salvador Dali. Salvador Dali. And the two would hang out for weeks on end, going on these extended sprees of bizarre hedonistic excess. Alice didn't speak Spanish, and Salvador didn't speak English, but somehow that didn't bother either of them, as each of them fed off the strangeness and reckless abandon of the other. Both were surrealists in their own way. Both were very much performance artists, in addition to their respective core artistic form of expression. For a lot of this time, Salvador, for reasons that he never actually explained, carried around with him a huge, bright red lobster. It was his ever-present companion. I would imagine it was dead, or a life-size replica of a lobster. Otherwise, it would be pinching him and cutting off his fingers with its scissor-like tail. I don't know if you've ever tried to pick up a live lobster, but they were specifically designed to discourage anyone from wanting to pick them up. But he would wield it and wave it in people's faces for no apparent reason. There are still photos of him with the lobster. And you have to give it to him. It looked great on film. And made whoever was carrying it look ten times more surreal than they would have without it. Alice loved that. When I got interested in shooting stereoscopic 3D films later in my life, I stumbled across a series of 3D stereoscopic photos that Salvador had taken of Alice. That kind of 3D that you needed glasses to see. There were two images side by side, offset in their perspective to give the parallax effect that allowed the viewer to see the photo in 3D. Kind of like the old Viewmaster 3D photographs from the old days. Not kind of like, exactly like. Anyway, I told the taxi driver some of the many stories of Salvador that I knew from Cahill's stories about this period. The driver seemed to hugely appreciate these stories because they were not in common circulation, and as a social currency, they were not all worn out. He told me a story about how not long ago, Salvador was visiting Barcelona. And for some reason, he was traveling with a giant, majestic white stallion. He checked into one of the preeminent luxury hotels in Barcelona, and then demanded that they accommodate his giant horse in the same suite that he was staying in. The hotel absolutely refused, but you can't say no to Salvador Dali, and probably with a massive extra deposit for the inevitable cleaning that would need to happen as a result of having a giant, full-grown stallion walking around your hotel apartment for a few days. That event was cemented into Barcelona history. A few more volleys back and forth of great stories about Salvador Dali, and then something remarkable happened. The driver was still nowhere near the beach, 
pulled into a small alley and abruptly pulled the car to the side of the road and threw it in park. I was waiting for him to pull out a knife or a gun and rob me, but instead, he motioned for me to get out and follow him. He walked into a nondescript door and I followed, still expecting to have one or more of my organs harvested. Inside was one of the coolest small locals bars I'd ever seen. The already low ceilings were adorned with hanging meats and pickled octopi, which was a surrealist sight all by itself, because it took me a minute to register that they were hanging not for shock value or for some kind of postmodernist decor, but they were hanging along with cuts of prosciutto and fine Spanish jamón to cure in the cool, dank, shadowy cellar. It was a small bar with lots of great vintage Spanish wines. The driver took the rest of the day off and insisted that I spend the rest of the day with him just hanging out and trading Salvador Dali stories. The rest of the day was a blur, and before I knew it, without having a clear idea of how I got back to my room, I woke up the next morning in my hotel room. I was alone, my wallet was there, and my organs were all accounted for, so I took that as a win. I still hadn't been to the beach, so I tried again, and this time I actually made it. With a life-threatening hangover from the many bottles of wine from the day before, and still reeling from the experiences of the previous week, I was equipped to do nothing but just lie there and watch the waves soak up the rays that I'd been pining for for about the last three months. That night, I stopped at a Spanish gastropub near my hotel, and I made the colossal mistake of ordering carpaccio raw beef. Any seasoned traveler will tell you never order anything raw or even rare when you're traveling because the best way to get food poisoning was to do just that. And of course by the end of the night I was violently vomiting and shaking and sweating from the worst food poisoning I'd ever experienced. It wasn't tomain or the usual kind of poisoning. Being a devout bachelor up until that time I was accustomed to poisoning myself from various means, leaving chicken out too long or by visiting the wrong Mexican restaurant in LA. This was botulism, the really deadly, horrible kind of poisoning that people regularly die from. At about day three, totally exhausted from continual retching, absolutely dehydrated from throwing up over and over again, feeling like my ribs had broken at some point from the compressions, I realized I couldn't get up off the floor. I was totally prone on the fine, polished marble floor because it was cool. There was no air conditioning in the room, so that cool marble probably saved my life. But with the realization that I was too weak to get up off the floor, and realizing that I didn't have the strength to lift myself up to the phone, not that I could have used the phone anyway, European phones are still a complete mystery to me. I have no idea how people get them to work, plus I don't really speak Spanish and I don't know anyone's phone numbers anyway. It was then I realized I hadn't told anyone about my travel plans, not to Amsterdam and certainly not that I would decide on a dime to go to Barcelona. So I guessed that they would eventually find my body and in about a year, the news would get back to my loved ones and co-workers that I'd been found dead on the floor of a hotel in Barcelona. Somehow, on day four, I was able to lift myself up to pick up the phone. Ironically, in this hotel, the staff absolutely respected the Do Not Disturb sign, and I almost died from that degree of respect. I don't remember how, but somehow the woman at the front desk was able to connect me with one of my dirtbag surfer friends in San Diego, whose phone number was in my head. I gave him a credit card number and he was happy to buy a ticket, come and rescue me. He arrived in about 48 hours, picked me up off the ground, cleaned all the sick off of me, got me liquids and revived me and generally helped me recover by running interference, food, dealing with various things that I was too weak and broken to accomplish by myself. 
We spent the next few days on the beach till I was back to full operational condition, at which point another chapter began that involved a travel to Stonehenge, which is a story for another time. But I never forgot that special day with the taxi driver, and it keeps a light in my heart to know that no matter how lowbrow and ugly and indifferent to beauty most of the world is, there was still this place where art was revered and where artists were revered. Salvador Dali said that the reason Spain produced more artists of note than any other place was because of an absolutely unique combination of light and color. He said Russia has its authors, but no great painters. I can think of some Italian painters who might beg to differ, but who am I to question someone as influential in my life as Salvador Dali? So all of that finally brings me to the point of all of this which may come as a surprise to people who listen to me or talk to me with any frequency because I can go days, weeks, or months without ever coming to the point. And usually when I do, it's to remind the listener that the thing to remember was that I was wearing an onion tied to the end of my belt, as was the fashion at the time. Here's why I bring up Salvador Dali and my time in Barcelona. I was watching a YouTube recently about Salvador Dali and his interest in ceremonial magic. As I watched it, I realized that my patron Saint Salvador had just handed me a key, a missing piece to my own struggle to put into words some of the most important and least tangible points about the relationship of art and esotericism, or art and spirituality if you prefer. He said, learn to paint and draw like the old masters, and then you can do whatever you want and people will respect you. Modern art has lost something, its primary purpose, as it was seen and demonstrated by the ancients. His exact quote is this, Today, the love of the defective is such that genius is recognized only in defects, and especially in ugliness. The moment a Venus resembles a toad, the contemporary pseudo-asthete will exclaim, It's powerful. It's human. Certain it is that Raphael-esque perfections would pass totally unperceived before their eyes. Ingre yearned to paint like Raphael, and only painted like Ingre. Raphael yearned to paint like the ancients and exceeded them. When visiting a modern art exhibit in Paris, Dali exclaimed that the most impressive painting in the exhibit was the door through which the audience entered into the gallery, and then that the painter who painted the door was capable of painting any of the paintings on display, but the painters featured were not capable of painting the door. Dali felt that contemporary art had gotten lazy, and some ancient wisdom had been lost. That wisdom necessitated and inspired the expenditure of effort. He talked about the mystery of patina and how certain classic works of art got more beautiful with age. This is the only fair and truthful marker of quality. When the hype has faded away, when the styles and fashions have shifted to future trends and novelties, which works of old remain and continue to get more valuable and more beautiful each year? And which works will become passé or worse, forgotten entirely? Modern art, in most cases, has abandoned any pretense at beauty, in the classical sense, and masterful technique. It's become a, an exercise in marketing, using shock, subversion, and an inversion of tropes, which are tropes in themselves, to chase a market. I've heard it said recently that art has become nothing more than a massive money laundering scheme. Dali maintained that the greatest painters came from Spain, or at the very least, a Mediterranean country. He remarked that Russia, with its many genius mathematicians, philosophers, poets, composers, has never had a great painter. This he attributes to the colors and the scenes and the views 
and the beauty one is exposed to in his life. I've heard other painters say that the quality of light differs radically, depending on where on the globe a painter might be. This is why Matisse moved to Tahiti. As he said, there was a particular purple-red sunset property to the golden hour there that was not present anywhere else. Dali said that the tropics produced art that suffered from what he called hypercolorality, too much color. And the snow countries are depressing, bland, void of the colors necessary to paint beautifully. He said snow is the enemy of the retina. The reason I bring this up is because it speaks to the importance of higher, elevated aesthetics as a kind of nutrition for the soul. People who were raised in an environment where beauty and an elevated aesthetic were not present are often underdeveloped people, not just in an artistic sense, but in a compassionate or otherwise soulful sense. This is why visits to museums, out in nature or gardens, or the beach, or other places where natural beauty abounds, are essential for the development of the soul, which is also the nature and point of esotericism. This is the essence of what I tried to frame and bring to the forefront in the Magical Egypt series. It's not about the art or the architecture per se, although each is a masterclass of technique and physical execution. But what's most important about it, most misunderstood and least appreciated, is that it is a genuine form of magical technology. It's esoteric technology in the highest sense. This is what is lost or forgotten about the original purpose of art. This is why art is a form of magic, as is music. Another point of resonance with Dali is that Dali used a technique that is often called Gestalt Switch. Most people are familiar with examples of the Gestalt Switch technique from those turn-of-the-century illustrations that are two things at once. A young lady, but then through a reframing of one's perspective, it is simultaneously an old woman. Or a rabbit that's simultaneously a duck. Dali would use compositions of familiar shapes placed just so so that an emergent meta-picture would emerge from the collage of shapes. The reason I bring this up is that this technique was very much in use in the artworks that we studied in our aesthetic research project that was the basis of the Magical Egypt series. This project was labeled a forensic study of ancient science through the study of ancient art and architecture. It was the research project that unearthed the history-bending series of discoveries that we presented in the Magical Egypt series where we demonstrated that sophisticated and medically accurate 3D models and schematics of the brainstem and many of the other neurological, vascular, and endocrinal systems that all form the biological basis of consciousness were encrypted into ancient Egyptian art. In the philosopher Hegel's immortal discussion of art and the three great ages of art, he lays out three clear demarcations where the fundamental function or purpose of art has shifted. Art over the centuries has suffered from what they call mission creep, a phrase that suggests that often in a complex operation or organization, the original intention of the organization or operation starts to morph over time, bending and shifting, until in many cases it drifts so far that it moves in the exact opposite direction that it was originally intended, accomplishing the exact opposite polarity of what it originally mandated for itself. Common examples of this might be things like the United Nations, which began ostensibly to prevent war and harbor unity and harmony among participant countries. Now it is the catalyst for a lot of the most pernicious wars. The World Health Organization was formed to look out for the health of the world, but somehow in the COVID pandemic, it was responsible for the very worst, most deadly decisions, the lockdowns, the false reports about the origins of the virus, and the uniformly terrible counterproductive actions at every step of the way resulting in vastly more deaths and misery than would have occurred if they'd just remained silent. 
There are millions of examples of organizations and institutions who've suffered mission creep and over time literally became the polar opposite of their original stated mandate. Google's tagline used to be, don't be evil, if you can even imagine that. So art itself over the centuries has undergone a similar mission creep. As Salvador Dali pointed out, it has lost something. It has ceased to be a magical technology. Dali put into words something that I've been struggling to articulate for years about the true secret of art and the true secret of why ancient Egypt is so important, not just to artists, but to esotericists and occultists and to practicing magicians everywhere. He laid bare these secrets in a very explicit way, as explicit as Dali ever was, in a remarkable and strangely unappreciated book titled 50 Secrets of Magic Craftsmanship. Dali understood that true art was magic, an act of magic. It invoked something hidden deep in the recesses of the viewer. In many cases, it evoked a thing that the viewer was totally unaware of, an entity, a higher self, residing somewhere in the shadowy back rooms of his psyche. Now, why is any of that relevant? There was a technology behind the technique, and a purpose, and a function that's been largely lost. Now, gimmickry and shock, and something that deviates from the rules of beauty. Art that deviates the farthest from the classics. Art that disrupts or inverts the values of the classics is considered important art. More ugliness to replace beauty, like disharmony replacing harmony, like asbestos replacing fruit and milk and bread. As I mentioned in the script of season two of Magical Egypt, when the philosopher Hegel discussed the three ages of art and what was lost when symbolic art gave way to the Romantic period, where art was valued solely on its representational accuracy. In the later two ages, the classical and Romantic period, emphasis on art sending a message or having a symbolic value, having a symbolic transmission that the art delivered, fell away and gave way to representational accuracy and as in the classical period and in the romantic age art became more about a celebration of the artist and the cult of personality around the artist in our study of art in magical egypt we focused on the art as a delivery mechanism for this ancient message where the message is laid quite bare is quite explicit that message does not seem to be present in the later two ages the classical and romantic Here's a quote from Professor Hulgate in 2016 from an article named Hegel's Aesthetics in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Art satisfied our highest needs when it formed part of an integral part of our religious life and revealed to us the nature of the divine and, as in Greece, the true character of our fundamental ethical obligations. In the modern, post-Reformation world, however, art has been released or has emancipated itself from subservience to religion. Art no longer affords that satisfaction of spiritual needs which earlier ages and nations sought in it and found in it alone, a satisfaction that, at least on the part of religion, was most intimately linked with art. The beautiful days of Greek art, like the golden age of later Middle Ages, are gone. In all these respects, art, considered in its highest vocation, is and remains for us a thing of the past. Thereby, it has lost for us genuine truth and life, and has rather been transferred into our ideas, instead of maintaining its earlier necessity and reality and occupying a higher place. According to Hegel, art has served its primary historical duty. Religion was the next mode of understanding for the world and its truths. However, Hegel believed by this time, even religion was reaching its own end, 
and only philosophy can effectively continue pushing humanity forward. In the original function and purpose and role of art, art was put to its highest purpose through a union with science. Art was used as the delivery vector for the most important accumulated wisdom the culture was in possession of. Art was didactic. It taught. It was there to teach through the language of symbolism and through many other visual languages. Art was the repository and the transmitter of the ageless wisdom traditions of the most important accumulated ideas that a culture could share, that a culture could possess. But the didactic or educational aspect of art, where art was unified with symbolism to transmit a sophisticated, ancient, but highly technological science, was lost. And with it, our birthright of the highest intellectual caliber. The secrets of the ages, and more importantly, the central secret of us, of consciousness. It's a notorious blind spot for modern science. Of all the things we've discovered and solved, of all the mysteries that modern science has laid bare, the mystery of the nature and the structure and the substance and the origins of consciousness are still a total mystery. It seems that ancient art was nothing less than the long-lost owner's manual for the human psyche, and that it not only contained schematics that indicated the biological basis for consciousness, but it contained roadmaps for accessing higher, long-forgotten, dormant aspects of consciousness that most of us consider supernatural fairy tales, aspects of the further frontiers of the human psyche that in the Vedic world were known as cities. It is through this mechanism that art becomes a magical technology, and through this study that we understand the true secrets of esotericism, of magic, of the occult. So here's how art can serve as an act of magic or an artifact of magical technology. This is an insight into the true nature and function of art, and is at the heart of what was lost when we lost our connection to the original function and role of art. It facilitates the transition of our identity, of our center of operation. It acts as a catalyst to reignite our own pilot light. It provokes us to rise to the level it expresses, the creativity, the timelessness, the beauty, that's why classics work as spiritual nutrition, spiritual Viagra, if you will, creative Viagra. Man is the image of God to the extent that we are image makers. We are a lower dimensional shadow of God in that our images are lifeless. In that way that when we read a book, we are channeling a great author and we temporarily adopt the mode of thought, the IQ even, of the protagonist. By reading a great book, looking at a painting that brings us into resonance with the level of spiritual attainment of the author, or an artist who achieves, however briefly, a state of transcendence that he or she then puts down on paper or into a poem, into a song or a painting or an animation or whatever. The work that was this channel transcendence then radiates at this level, this strata of spiritual attainment, this level that the spiritual helium balloon has risen to. A simple, easy metaphor here. The perspective one has at a higher altitude is far greater. Details are more beautiful, and the expanse and the bigger picture are plain to see. On the ground, or in a ditch, or in a cave, the big picture is hidden, obscured. But higher elevation gives farther sight, farther into the future, farther in every way. So that is what art used to do, what it used to be. A catalyst, a Viagra for the soul. A reminder that we are not just the temporal, physical part of ourselves. We are not the foundation. We are the spires, the weather vane, the cupola, the parts of the architecture that enter into a lover's union with the sky. 
here's another quick digression about how the experience of a genius work of art can have a transformative effect on us. To bring to the forefront that part of us that is equal in vibrational rate, equal in genius to the work of art we're appreciating, the work of art that we enter into a temporary resonance with. I've always loved science fiction, although it's been more than a decade nowadays since, since I've had the time to read any fiction. But when I did, the unquestioned king of sci-fi, for me at least, was Arthur C. Clarke. He was the author of the Foundation Trilogy, as well as one of my all-time favorite works, the 2001 a Space Odyssey book that he wrote in conjunction with Stanley Kubrick for the release of Kubrick's immortal film of the same name. It was while I was reading one of the sequels to that book, which I think was titled 2020, which is sort of comical now in 2022 because clearly he missed the mark, or should I say that humanity has failed miserably to live up to Arthur C. Clarke's expectations of our technological evolution as it would be in 2020. Anyway, the point is this. Something happened to me as a result of reading the book. Having read, and in essence channeling, the inner dialogue and thought processes and logical approach of the protagonist of the book, who is a highly accomplished scientist and engineer and astronaut, whose every move could be his last if he didn't calculate the risks and possible unforeseen events that resulted from technology and natural causes, I found myself, for almost a month after I'd finished the book, returning to the thought processes and the mental policies that the genius protagonist had gone through in the day-to-day -day execution of his duties. I found myself thinking a lot more, evaluating the risks and rewards, spending a moment to examine possible unforeseen consequences if things went sideways, using logical syllogisms to establish possibilities without barging in and just seeing what would happen, which was my operational policy for most things before I read this book. In short, by channeling the thinking and the thought processes of a genius scientist, I thought like a genius scientist for almost a month after that. Of course it wore off eventually, but it was never lost on me that this is the true role of art, and the thing that's been lost by modern art. When we come face to face with true creativity, true genius, true novelty, or beauty that is heartbreaking and inspirational, there's a part of us that resonates with it. We lift up spiritually, or metaphysically, or mentally, to resonate at the frequency of genius that the art radiates. If a work of art was created from a moment or a position of epiphany and rare insight, in a moment of communion with the angels, then when we engage in the art in the right way, it catalyzes us, it prompts us. We are elevated to that same state of ecstatic epiphany, to that same state of grace or spontaneous genius. We are dancing with the same angels. To put it in magical terms, it's very akin to what is sometimes referred to as sympathetic magic. An example of sympathetic magic is a familiar one, the use of a voodoo doll. The sympathetic part comes in from the fact that the doll is a small facsimile of the person, perhaps incorporating a piece of their hair or clothing, or one of their cherished possessions. And because of the resonances or sympathies between the little doll and the person, things done to the doll happen to the person, at least in theory. This is a slightly different kind of sympathetic magic, more true to the actual definition of the word sympathetic. The tendency of two systems to fall into sync when exposed to one another for the right amount of time. The work that radiates genius, or an extreme moment of beauty, tends to catalyze in us, raise our operational level, to fall into sympathetic resonance with it, lifting us to the exalted state of creative genius, or magical, universal insight, that is expressed in the work of art. To use another metaphor, or another aspect of magical technology, it acts as a kind of invocation ceremony conjuring of sorts, bringing to life the part of us, the daemon, 
the demiurge, the angel, the sleeping genius that lies, in some cases hiding, in some cases hibernating, or comatose, or even presumed dead, but is called forth, lifted up with the lion's grip, to come forward and resonate with the caliber or frequency of genius that the art is radiating. Even common people are elevated and in many cases experience a huge uptick in their own creativity, inspiration, epiphany. They even experience unexpected flashes of genius after being exposed to brilliant creative works. So this is why ancient Egypt has such a dramatic effect on some people. There's a genius on display. An abnormal, anomalous degree of intelligence, of genius, of insight, and a sympathetic vibration with some of the deepest mysteries of the universe. Not only is it highly probable that we recognize and remember this artwork or these temples from previous incarnations, but it's also the case that the art is doing exactly what it was designed to do, to elevate our own mental and psycho-spiritual processes to such a place that we are suitable students suitable vessels for the profoundly deep and penetrating secrets of the universe and the origins of universal consciousness which lie at the center of the mysteries and are the central secrets of the ancient wisdom traditions. On some deep, perhaps subconscious level, some people can feel the power of these expressions of art and the awesome elevated frequency that they radiate on and can feel their own higher aspects awaken and lift up or evolve to a posture and a resonant frequency, so that communing with the art, the statuary, and the architecture on display in the ruins and in the museums acts as a catalyst for our own rapid psycho-spiritual evolution or unfurlment, or however you want to put it. Art and architecture, in their original conception, when used in their original context, for the original purpose, served as a delivery vector for a kind of information that in some ways could not be transmitted by simple language alone. It spoke to the hemisphere of the brain that does not deal with language, but in understandings, the hemisphere that speaks in music, that creates and governs associations, the hemisphere that takes facts and bits of knowledge and turns them into wisdom by assigning them each a place on the great three-dimensional shoe tree of meaning, or as it's sometimes called, the map of meaning or the 3D synaptic structure of our own personal cosmological model. Art in the ancient world, art from Hegel's first age of art, was united with the ancient, ageless science, and their union formed a powerful mode of communication that could speak directly to the part of the psyche that deals in symbols and associations, the part that creates understanding, the part that turns a pedantic collector of random facts into a wise man or a genius. It was the repository for the most valued and cherished understandings, the ten poles of the highest science held by the ancients. When it is asked, and it is asked often by thinking people, how could they have been so smart? This is the reason. The ancients used the primal power of aesthetics, of beauty itself, of art and symbolism in which it speaks, to communicate the most profound message, the most important things we can know, in a language that's not bound by time or region a translingual mode of communication that imparts understanding rather than dogma. It speaks to the timeless part of us, to the immortal part of us, reminding us that there is in fact a timeless aspect to us, beneath the temporal mortal part that we most normally identify with. And in fact the seed and the whole of esotericism, of hermeticism, of occult study, of magical operation, is to shift our identity out of an identification with the temporal, mortal, mechanical, flesh-bound vehicle, to the timeless, immaterial, immortal aspect of ourselves. They are both there, 
And like the old Indian fable about the good wolf and the bad wolf, you might ask, which one will live? The answer is the same, the one that you feed. We have a span of a lifetime to awaken. excited to announce the release of our new film called Heka. Heka looks at the magic of ancient Egypt and how that pertains to the story of ancient Egypt and fills in a whole new perspective that we have been missing collectively for hundreds of years. 
It features Gordon White, Chance Gardner, Joseph Patrick Farrell, Lon Milo Duquette, Tobias Churton, Graham Hancock, of course, the fabulous John Anthony West, Rupert Sheldrake, Stephen Skinner, Thomas Sheridan, Peter Mark Adams, Thomas Joseph Brown, Aton Veggie, Mog Morton, Bernardo Catstrop, Shauna Home, Mark Passio, John Zaraki, and the goddess Joanna Kujawa. I am so incredibly proud of it, and I invite you to come and have a look. You can find a link on MagicalEgypt.com. Yeah. 